Okay, Dr. Deron Scher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's great to be here today. Cool. And can we start by just giving the listeners a bit of a background about yourself and your journey into medicine? Yeah, so um, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, by the time I was 12 years old, I'd broken 12 bones, so it seemed fairly logical that I was going to go into orthopedic surgery. So I actually did medicine with the intention of doing orthopedic surgery. Um, then went through the journey, trained in Sydney. I did overseas fellowships in uh, Italy, Canada, and the US, and then came back and I've been practicing as an orthopedic surgeon in Australia now for nearly 21 years. Great, fantastic. And as a bit of a preface for the rest of the interview, I just want to give listeners an idea about the process involved in the actual procedure to replace someone's knee. So w- what is that like and what, what does it involve? So, look, knee replacements, on the one hand, is one of the biggest, most brutal operations we do to people, but it's also one of the most satisfying from a patient outcome perspective. And as long as you are ready for the operation and your pain's bad enough and your health is optimized, it's a really, really wonderful operation. But as with any operation, things can go wrong, and we really need to try and minimize the number of things that can go wrong with this operation. So essentially what you do is you make a a cut over the front of the patient's knee, open up the knee to get into the joint. Now, arthritis by definition is damage to the joint lining cartilage. And by the time most people have a knee replacement, they're already bone on bone inside the knee. And when the two bones touch together, that creates pain. So the idea of the knee replacement is to cut away the diseased bone and implant uh, a metal capping on the femur or thigh bone, a fairly flat piece on the tibia or shin bone, and then we use a metal, uh, a medical grade plastic called a high molecular weight polyethylene in between the two. You then close everything up and uh, the patient then wakes up from their anesthetic. And from the patient's perspective, that's really when the hard work starts. You have to get your wound healed, you have to get your knee moving, and you have to uh, learn essentially how to walk again. But most people are very grateful because as soon as the pain in the cut goes away, that deep ache of the arthritis isn't there anymore. So um, it it is a wonderful operation, but there's a lot to go through in order to get to the other side of the operation. Hmm. And the question that I have because this podcast is about metabolic health and and chronic disease, is what are the risk factors and what are the types of conditions that you see in patients who are requiring knee replacements and these types of procedures? Yeah, so look, even to go back a step before that, um, there's a lot of patients that uh, don't understand how the knee works. Now, every time you take a step, four times your body weight goes through your knee and when you go up and down stairs, nearly six times your body weight goes up and down, go, goes through your patellofemoral joint. So if you're one kilogram overweight, your knee's seeing an extra four kilograms per step. And if you're taking forty, uh, if you're taking ten thousand steps a day, that's an extra forty thousand kilograms extra through your knee. And because the bone has pressure receptors in it, you're going to feel a lot more pain. So if you can lose that kind of weight. Uh, you know, one kilogram will take an extra 40,000 kilograms through your, out of your knee after one day. And most people need to lose a lot more than one kilogram. So if you lose 10 kilograms, that's nearly half a ton of weight less through your knee after one day's walking. And so if you can lose some weight, you're going to put a lot less pressure through your knee. So even before we get to the operation, Doing things like optimizing their medical health, optimizing their medical conditions and losing weight will often get rid of the need for the knee replacement for a very long time. So that's really the first step. If we've done everything that we can to avoid the knee replacement, the patient's already had physiotherapy, perhaps some injections, uh, some herbal supplements if they choose to go down that pathway, uh, some strengthening exercises and some painkillers. If they're still at the point where their lifestyle is so impinged that they have to have the surgery, then yes, the operation's a wonderful thing to do. But the more um, overweight you are at the time of your operation, the more difficult the anesthetic is going to be. It'll be harder for the anesthetist to put in a spinal lying down flat on your back puts more pressure on your lungs you're more likely to get collapse and pneumonia of your lungs also things which don't seem to be related you're more likely to get a urinary tract infection 
after the operation if you're overweight, and you're more likely to get a wound problem with the knee after the operation. The bigger you are, the longer the operation takes, and the more likely you are to run into wound problems as well. So there are a multitude of factors. Now, the other thing is diabetes is becoming a huge problem in our society. And if you're a diabetic with a high blood sugar, then that also increases all risks, including those of infection after the operation. So there's a lot that's worthwhile optimizing before you undertake the actual operation. Yeah, and that definitely makes sense. So what were the strategies traditionally to help people optimize their weight and their metabolic status um, prior to surgery? And perhaps give us an idea about what strategies that you, you've been using. Yeah, so I mean, in, in the past, what used to happen is the surgeon would send the patient back to their GP and say, look, the patient needs to lose weight. The GP would often send the patient to a dietitian. Uh, the patient would come back six or 12 months later and say, look, I haven't lost any weight. Um, and, you know, the patients always used to say, look, I really don't eat very much. And, and the tra- traditional teaching was that they're lying. They're snacking, they're having Coke, they're having chocolate, they're not exercising, the whole sloth and gluttony type scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unfortunately, for a long time, uh, I believed that as much as anybody else un- until probably six or eight years ago when, when I finally understood the science behind uh, fat storage and, and weight loss to understand that it actually wasn't the patient's fault. Most of them were doing what the dietitian was telling them, but the advice that they were being given didn't actually allow them to lose weight. And, and I, you know, one of my partners is a foot and ankle surgeon. He actually tracked a hundred patients that he did over a 12 month period. He actually followed that paradigm. And out of the hundred patients, two patients were able to lose more than two kilograms. The rest of them came back either the same body weight or higher after 12 months. So clearly that wasn't working. And, and that's basically um, how I got involved with the space. Uh, Paul Mason, who's a sports medicine exercise physician who most people in the nutrition space will know, was assisting me with my operations. And I was telling him, look, I'm seeing all these 50, 55-year-old 50 patients who are obese, and I just can't get them to lose weight. And if I could get them to lose weight, they could potentially defer their surgery or maybe even cancel it altogether. And when they did have their operation, they'd be in a much better space to be able to get their operation to reduce their complications. And so Paul and I started talking about low-carb. And um, I I was, as most other people, really worried about the whole cholesterol issue and eating butter and fat. And I was sure that that was going to kill my patients. I didn't think it was something I could recommend. But then I actually looked into the science of it myself. And after having you know, spent several months listening to as many podcasts and lectures, reading as many books, going back to the original physiology textbooks from med school, I actually understood that the information that we were given basically is generally wrong. It really is incorrect. The, the dangerous things are the uh, blood sugar levels and the fat storage rather than the uh, protein intake or fat intake, which we might do, which then helps us actually lose weight. And that was a completely different paradigm than what the dietitians were telling us. The dietitians were following the standard guidelines. You need to have a certain num- num- number of grains, a certain number of fruit, a certain number of carbohydrate. You need to limit your saturated fats. And so people weren't able to lose weight because they were eating foods which stimulated insulin and therefore stimulated fat storage. So once Paul and I had, um, well, once Paul had educated me, really, I then said to him, look, we need to start actually trying this. And so I thought, well, who who better to do it on than my family? And I'm going to try it on my family first because my family needed to lose a bit of weight. You know, my brother knows I've discussed this about him beforehand. He was starting to get a little bit of renal failure and venous stasis changes. And he was overweight. He was exercising hard three times a week as well as being a, a man who, who ex, uh, works physically during the day, but simply couldn't lose weight. So he was kind of my first experiment. And we got him to lose 45 kilograms over an eight-month period by going low carb, which wow. he had never been able to do in his life beforehand. And it completely, completely turned around his life. So then I tried it on my, my parents. Who, you know, My mum and dad both lost about 12 kilos, improved their metabolic health. 
My mum was already becoming a type 2 diabetic and we were able to reverse that for her. And um, so I saw that, you know, the weight loss side of things was very, very predictable and reliable. And then, you know, once I satisfied myself that it was safe to do it, then I said to Paul, okay, now we need to start treating our patients. And he and I set up a, a little clinic together at my office. And um, then we started using using this, you know, dietary treatment on the patients and it had a massive massive impact patients that had never been able to lose weight in their lives all of a sudden were now able to lose 5 10 15 20 kilos i mean the easiest one of all was a patient that lost 75 kilos but you know that's someone that used to eat, eat crispy cream donuts for breakfast so wow. you know you can't claim too much of a win on on that one when you change that person but yeah, yeah 75 kilos is about the record of of pure dietary change no change in exercise, but that's what's achievable when you change people's diets. Mm. And that's fascinating. And what I really want to draw attention to and what I've discussed on, on previous podcasts is this idea that the patient is really being let down. And what you described with your colleagues' short uh, case series of 100 patients and two were able to lose anything, any substantial or not even really substantial weight on a traditionally on a traditional um based on traditional recommendations. I mean, isn't that just a, an indictment on the quality of the advice that they're being given? Um, I mean, if you took your car to a mechanic and you, you know it needed an oil replacement every 1,000 kilometres or its tyres changed every 3,000, you, you'd, you'd go to a different mechanic. And I think the, the tragedy here is that patients are following what they're being told and they're being misled and they're not being served by, by this advice. So um, it's it's incredible that with that change in paradigm, which you describe, a, a more of a hormonal model of obesity based on an understanding of the role of insulin, you are able to have these incredible results. And I don't think the patient's motivation changed at any point, if I'm correct. Mm. So, so look, I think, you know, we, we have to be careful not to um, blame people for the advice that they're given because that's the education that they've been provided. And I don't think they're doing it maliciously. I think what they're doing at the time, they were certainly following the, the, the Australian guidelines. And, and so to say these people were uh, incompetent or inept, they, they weren't really because they were following the rules that were around at the time. Now, these rules now are changing slowly because of the discussions that that you and I are having now and that other leaders have led in this field before us. And so the, the message is getting through to people that the old uh, paradigm was wrong. Now, not everybody's come around to that yet, but I think slowly and surely we will get to that point. But it's also a question of people understanding that as science advances, we learn more and, and we need to uh, actually change our thinking. So thinking that was maybe correct 20 years ago, we now know better. Now we need to change what we do. And now's the time to do that with dietary advice that we give to patients. Uh, you know, the, the other thing about it is that it's not just about weight. We've got these things called matrix metalloproteinases, which are produced in the liver. And these can be helpful. So if you've got a, a cut and you send a whole lot of MMPs down and it helps heal the wound, but if you've got a fatty liver, the MMPs get overproduced and then you get inflammation throughout the body, not just at areas that need to be healed. And so one of the interesting things about weight loss, if you've got an obese patient who's got arthritis in their hands, if they're able to lose 10 to 15% of their body weight, what happens is their hand arthritis gets better. Now, we were talking about knees beforehand, how taking weight on your knee puts extra pressure. But clearly, you're not taking weight on your hands. So the hormonal model for arthritis is incredibly important. Weight loss, hand arthritis, less painful. That's where the MMPs and, and advanced glycation end products come into it. So it, it really is a holistic thing throughout your whole body. It's not just about pure mechanics in the knees. And that's a very interesting point. And I've heard of patients who've had symptomatic improvement of their osteoarthritis who weren't particularly overweight by just cutting out particularly grains and going on a more low-carbohydrate diet. And, yes. and there's, also, there's also a role of insulin mm. and hyperinsulinemia in provoking inflammation in the joints, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, absolutely. But it, it may be even more simple than that because fructose uh, is much more pro-inflammatory than what uh, glucose is. And as mm-hmm. you know, sucrose is a combination of glucose and fructose. And yet, you know, there's a whole lot of soft drinks which have high fructose corn syrup. And one of the things that I, most of my patients really have trouble with is fruit. A lot of them believe that eating fruit is healthy and that they need to eat fruit. But when you explain to them that fruit is full of fructose, you know, fruit is really nature's candy. You're only supposed to have fruit a couple of times a year. And if you're a bear and you're about to go and hibernate and you want to put on a lot of weight to last you through the winter, you just go and gorge yourself on fruit. And fruit doesn't provide satiety. Fructose doesn't make you feel full. So you can eat as much fruit as you like and keep going and keep going. So then you're getting this, this whammy of, fructose to create inflammation, fructose to create fat storage and lack of satiety. And for the very few minerals and vitamins that you're going to get from the fruit, uh, the downside is far greater because we have fruit all year round. You know, even in the middle of winter, you can get yourself a mango, which has been flown in from some other country. So, you know, if you, I don't think there's a problem eating fruit if you eat it in limited amounts at the right season. But to have it breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, and then to think that it's actually healthy for you to eat that much fruit is one of the biggest misconceptions that, we're, that you know, my patients have. And they say, look, I'm doing everything right. I'm, I've cut out all the, the, the bread and pasta. Okay, well, how much fruit are you having? Oh, no, I'm having you know, three or four pieces of fruit every single day. And you know, like an orange has nearly six, the equivalent of like nearly six, six teaspoons of of sugar in it and then they're eating fruit juice which has five or six oranges in it and they're drinking it down in two minutes so fruit really is one of the 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 culprits in our society that we have to be careful of that people think is healthy and you see the patient their weight loss improve once you they remove fruit oh look amongst other things it's not Mm. good enough just to get rid of the fruit but a lot of them get rid of all of the other stuff and then keep going with the fruit and then wonder why their weight loss is stalled or they aren't doing well with it. And then you take out the fruit as well and then the weight loss happens. Yeah. I mean, but, but every patient is slightly different. Some, some people, some people, it's the fruit. Some people, they are, uh, you know, just not realizing that there's carbohydrates and stuff. Um, I don't know. Have you ever used a continuous glucose monitor on yourself just to see what happened to your blood sugar levels when you ate? No, I haven't. It's a really, really interesting experiment to do, mm. and and it gives you real time feedback of what's happening with your food. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, before I tried this on patients, I experimented on myself uh, as well to understand what did low carb do for me. And you get surprises sometimes. For example, I had the continuous glucose monitor on, and I had some sausages, and my blood sugar spiked after I ate the sausages. And it, I didn't I didn't realize at the time that there's a lot of rice flour and other fillers in sausages. It's not just meat. <clears throat> so you get meat, herbs, spices, but fillers. And then once I understood that, I then started getting the local butcher to make me sausages without the rice flour and without the sugars in it. And then when I eat my sausage now, my blood sugar stays completely level. Um, so there's, there's hidden sugars that we don't know about and, and that, that it takes a long time to get educated about. That's fascinating. And the power of a continuous glucose monitor, as, as you say, it's, it's an N of one experiment on yourself and everyone is going to have a slightly different glycemic <clears throat> response, even to the same food. So, yes. um, I agree that's a, it's an incredibly valuable tool and hopefully patients will be ha- able to have more access to them, uh, in the future. And yes. in terms of fasting, have you do you recommend fasting, or have you seen good results with fasting with your patients? Okay, so the big the big thing is to understand that different people believe fasting is different things. All right, some people think that skipping breakfast is fasting. Right, so for me, if you're not hungry, don't eat that particular meal; just eat the next meal. On a personal level, I rarely eat more than two meals a day, just because I'm not hungry. I've learned over the years when I'm hungry and when I'm not. Um, and if I'm not hungry, I'll skip a meal and then I'll just eat the next meal. And if I'm super busy during the day, I might eat only one meal a day. But on another day, I might be hungry and I might eat four times during the day. So I don't have a prescriptive way of, of having uh, 
food, but what I try and understand is when I'm hungry and when I'm not. And that can take a long time for that to happen. So for me, fasting is when you're getting into two-day or three-day fasts where where you're actually not eating for an extended period of time. And so the three-day fasts are pretty important when you started talking about autophagy or being able to um, renew and refresh your own cells. So like a 16-8 diet where you um, don't eat for 16 hours and eat for eight, to me, that's not fasting. That's, that's time-restricted eating as opposed to a fast, which is getting you into longer periods of, of time for metabolic health. Yes, I think there are enormous advantages to time-restricted eating. I think people habit-eat a lot of the time. Um, and uh, we've got this little thing called the cheese test. If you open up the fridge and you're hungry, you'll eat the block of yellow cheese. But if you're going there because you want a piece of fruit or a chocolate or a snack, if you're not going to eat that yellow cheese, you're not actually hungry. Close the fridge, walk away because you're just habit-eating. That's a great, that's another great heuristic. Fantastic. And so I guess you've got to this point where now you're implementing a, a very effective dietary strategy for the patients who are interested and motivated to help themselves. You're obviously getting good results prior to even needing to do surgery. So what percentage of your patients are you actually completely diverting away from a knee replacement? Look, it's, it's hard to put um, exact numbers uh, on that um, because I, I don't necessarily see the patients frequently enough because I don't do the metabolic treatment myself. Paul or one of their, their local practitioners that tend to do it. I get them started on the journey um, and then they come back to me um, if their knee is still a problem. But it's a minimum of at least 20% of these patients are able to, for many years, defer their surgery or cancel it completely. And then what happens is if they come back three, four years later, they've lost the weight, they say, look, now my knee needs their operation. They're just in a far better position to actually have their operation than they were in the first place. Uh, So their complication rates will be less, their, their physiotherapy will be easier, their muscle strengthening will be better. So there really is no downside to doing this. Some people really have a, a, because for so many years they've been drummed into them, high fat's bad, high fat's bad, it's going to kill you, it's going to cause heart disease. Even if we, even if that was true, which personally I don't believe it is, but even if it was true, going on a dietary journey for a period of 12, six or 12 months is definitely not going to cause that. That's something that happens over years and years and years of eating. But this is the most reliable method of losing weight without feeling hungry all the time and without, um, you know, stripping all your muscle out at the same time. So I I encourage people, even if they say, look, I'm not going to do this long term. All right, well, just at least do it for the moment to get the weight loss happening and get on with the exercise and get on with the other non-operative arthritis treatment to be able to get you through this. There's lots of ways of losing weight. You know, you can go on a starvation diet. You you stop eating, you don't eat eat anything at all for three months, you're going to lose weight. If all you eat is potatoes all day, every day, for sure, you're going to lose weight because you're not getting enough amino acids and proteins. But those are really, really tough ways to do it. Whereas this, you know, doing a low-carb eating pattern is really, it's easy to do because uh, it's something that you don't feel hungry. Uh, you're not depriving yourself of, of tasty foods. It's just a really easy way to do it. And for anyone who's thinking, well, what exactly do you mean by a low-carbohydrate diet? In your approach, what is the implementation or the recommendation that you give your patients? Um, so the first thing um, is to uh, understand the hormone response to um, to food. So the first thing I want to do is educate them. So I get them to go and, you know, if they just Google Dr. Doron Sher and the word insulin, there's a YouTube video of mine up there, which just goes into the, the basic science of why eating certain foods creates a hormone response and then what that hormone response does. And that's the starting point. They really have to be engaged and understand what they're doing. 
because um, they, they need to understand that cheating is not a, not okay. If, if it might take three, four, five days for you to get back to the hormonal level that you need to be if you've had a pizza. So it's not like I had a pizza today, I'm back on my diet tomorrow and everything's okay. It's It might take from the pizza today until four days from now before you stop that insulin response. So basically what we want to do is get them eating foods which don't create as much of an insulin response. So carbohydrates cause the longest insulin response. So what's a carbohydrate? That's the first thing to understand because people need to understand that the, the, the issue of complex and simple carbohydrates doesn't exist. Basically, our carbohydrates are sugar. And a complex carbohydrate is 12 of those sugars combined together as a long molecule. But as soon as it hits your stomach, your enzymes break it down into 12 individual sugars. So a complex carbohydrate and a simple carbohydrate are essentially the same thing. So where are the carbohydrates? Well, this is where you're going to find them. Bread, pasta, potatoes, rice, crackers, anything starchy at all. Um, and brown rice is no better than white rice. Sweet potato is no be better than a regular potato. Brown bread is no better than white bread in terms of the carbohydrate content. Once those carbohydrates hit your stomach, that's when you get the insulin response. When you get the insulin response, if you, you know, insulin initially is actually to, to drive sugar and protein into your muscles. But if your muscles are full, there's nowhere for that to go. So the, the glucose needs to get out of the bloodstream. And to get the blood, the glucose out of the bloodstream, it gets driven into fat cells. So essentially, you eat the carbohydrate. There's nowhere for it to go into muscle. The body wants to get it out of the blood. So where does it drive it? Into fat. Any glucose that you eat becomes fat. And so we need to get rid of all of the high glucose containing foods. So that's where the, the, those starchy foods come from. Now, protein does cause somewhat of an insulin response, but nowhere near as much as what glucose or carbohydrates do. And then fat causes even less of an insulin response. So having protein, you're best off having the combination of protein and fat together. So for example, uh, you know, a scotch fillet as opposed to a chicken breast, because the chicken breast is almost pure protein. Now, if you want, if you're looking for the satiety as well, the fat and the protein together provide better satiety. So I guess it's a long-winded way of saying what I encourage people to do is really bump up their protein and eat things like green leafy vegetables, lettuce, mushrooms, those sorts of things, not the starchy vegetables, and really only eat when they're hungry, not eat because it, their, their watch says that it's time to eat. Now, it, it takes huge changes. So for example, for breakfast, you might need to change to eggs, avocado, and salmon. But some people just like having steak for breakfast. That's fine. But if you don't want to have a steak for breakfast, there are other options. Lunch, if you want to have your salad, that's fine. But be careful what dressing you put on it, that, it, that it's not full of sugars as well. And you know you want to have some protein with your salad. And then the same thing at dinner, if you're going to eat three meals a day. So it's really a question of educating them what carbohydrates are, how to avoid the carbohydrates, how to bump up their protein, how to eat the green leafy vegetables so that they're getting the nutrients that they need, and then only eat when you're hungry. That's kind of in a nutshell of, of the process. And that, yeah, that's fantastic advice. And I found that if you can get people to accept eating a steak in the morning, a big steak earlier in the day just keeps people going well, well, well into the into the late afternoon. Correct. The other dietary component that I want you to, I guess, share your opinion on is this, uh, these oils, polyunsaturated um, fatty acids or omega-6 yes. um, oils. W what's your opinion on them and how do you think they or can contribute to the disease process? So I think it's um, a combination of things. We also have to be a little bit careful of um, things like olive oil as well. So essentially, the, the polyunsaturated, uh, the PUFAs or, or you know, the vegetable oils or seed oils, they're not actually oils. They're, they're made from chemically processing stuff into something that looks like an oil. And they are very, very pro-inflammatory. So the same thing as fructose is very pro-inflammatory. 
and and uh, if you form advanced glycation end products from eating your uh, carbohydrates, the combination of all of these things together creates in, an inflammatory process in the body. Now, the omega-3 to 6 ratio is something that we really did focus on a lot. And I think perhaps we focused a little bit too much on it initially, and we're sort of coming back a little bit so that we're not pushing as much to, for people to try and increase their omega-3s because you do need some omega-6s as well. But if you've got too much of the omega-6 and not enough of the omega-3, then yes, that will definitely contribute to inflammation, problems with gut health, and just general joint problems. So I, personally, I, I don't eat um, any vegetable oils. I don't use them for cooking at all. For me, it's either you know animal fat or extra virgin olive oil. But I also, with the, with the olive oil, I check the crush date and the expiry date because you can't have olive oil that's years and years and years old because that can oxidize as well. But you know, overall, the the oils are a relatively small portion of what we need to achieve. The, the food changes um, are so much more important that once you've done that, then yes, change all the, the seed and vegetable oils as well. But, but don't think that doing one without the other is going to achieve an enormous amount. Yeah, and that's, that's great advice. I like to say only drizzle olive oil and make sure you're getting a high-quality olive oil, extra virgin, cold-pressed that has been stored properly. And often there can be problems with provenance especially if you don't live in somewhere like australia where we have access to high quality oils where there can be um adulteration with lower quality inferior seed oils uh, i guess uh that's a i guess another fascinating kind of um food uh piece of dogma that we're slowly adding to the list of of ones we're debunking i mean as you previously mentioned you know fruit is good and healthy for you that um a long long chain or complex carbs are, are, are more healthy for you, that we should be eating vegetable oils and, instead of saturated animal fats. The, these are just a series of pieces of misinformation that I think have contributed together to, you know, this, this state of, of poor health and chronic disease um, in, in Australia today. So I guess shifting to what you see in the hospital, and it's kind of ironic because the exact foods that we've just talked about as being harmful are often the foods that you see on the patient's um, plate at mealtime. Mm. So can, can you tell me, talk a little bit about um, the normal hospital food and what, what you try and do for your patients with regard to diet? Yeah, look, this has been an ongoing battle for me for more than five years now because it, initially when I went to speak to the hospitals about changing the patient's food, they, they told me I'm only a doctor, I don't know anything about nutrition, leave it to the dietitians. But, but thankfully over the last five years that really has changed and, and now at the private hospital, definitely, I've got control over the patient's food and, and we're in discussions now at the public hospital to try and achieve that, but the change happens very, very slowly. So if foods are high in carbohydrate, they generally don't go off very quickly or very easily because the, the sugar and preservatives in them can keep them for a long time. And so it's easy for those foods to be stored, transported, and then delivered out to the patients uh, in a less timely fashion. You know, if you cook an omelette, you can't serve the omelette the next day. It's got to be served within a few hours. And so the hospital systems are designed uh, to allow stuff to happen, um, you know, 36, 48 hours after the food's been delivered a lot of the time. You know, sandwiches can last easily a whole day uh, before they need to get uh, thrown out, you know, biscuits, ice cream, uh, chocolates, uh, all of that can last forever. Um, and, and so and it's also far, far, far cheaper to provide a carbohydrate-based product than what it is to provide a protein-based product. Um, and, and so there's cost issues, there's timing of delivery issues, there's storage, whether it's cold storage or hot storage. It is challenging for a hospital that has that many patients with different dietary requirements to actually provide nutritious food for them. And, and I get that completely. It's, it's expensive and it's difficult, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing it. And have you found that you have assistance from any dietitians or um, 
the dietitian profession or are you finding yourself working more against them? Uh, look, times are changing. There are a number of dietitians now that you can refer patients to that will promote this uh, style of eating. But, but again, for me, I, I'm not that directly involved with the day-to-day nutrition prescription advice other than with generalities with my patients and then giving them the information, the science. And if I actually want to see a doctor to monitor their cholesterol levels and, and all the other bits and pieces that need to be monitored with this, they will generally see a physician, whether it's a sports physician or general practitioner. It's generally not me monitoring these patients on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, I, I just don't have the, the time to be able to look after the nutrition needs of the patients directly, but I can at least direct them to somebody that can do that for them. Great. And I want to get your opinion, because I know you've talked about it previously, on bariatric surgery and particularly mm. bariatric surgery as a strategy to lose weight prior to uh, an orthopedic procedure. What, what are your thoughts? Okay. So it doesn't matter how you lose the weight. You are going to do better with your operation if you've lost the weight. So if bariatric surgery is the only way you're going to lose weight, if there weren't other options, then that's fine. The problem with bariatric surgery that we're seeing, and I'm seeing indirectly at the clinic, is the side effects five, ten years down the track, where number one, the person hasn't learned to eat differently, so they're still eating the same food. And over a period of time, the positive effects of the bariatric surgery are lost, and they start to put on all of the weight again. And now they're missing a piece of their stomach, but now they're in the same situation that they were previously. Also, there's a lot of patients that are ending up with significant uh, mineral and iron deficiencies, and copper is probably the biggest one we see that are undiagnosed five or 10 years down the track and then having significant metabolic health issues because of it. Now, if we didn't have any other options and the patients were massively overweight and they were going to die from their diabetes, etc., sure, bariatric surgery is not a bad thing to do to save someone's life. But we have so many better options that work without surgery. Why would you resort to doing something with an operation when changing your food will achieve the same outcome? And that's the key. We can get, we can achieve the same outcome without an operation. It's the same as a knee replacement. If we can take away the patient's pain without an operation, surely that's better than exposing them to all the risks of the surgery to achieve the same outcome. So lose weight by changing your diet. Don't lose weight by chopping out a piece of your stomach. Mm, yeah, I mean it's it's akin to taking a sledgehammer to uh, you know a fine little little nail on a on a wooden ship or something it's a complete overkill compared to uh, the less invasive options that work just as more effectively and yeah the idea of cutting out um an part of an anatomically normal stomach um without having tried something like a low carbohydrate diet to me is is again letting down the patient and it's it's about doing no harm and if we're not offering effective dietary advice first um, collectively as a profession, then, then we are letting down patients. Um, and, and that's fascinating in terms of the nutrient deficiency that you're seeing and, and particularly malabsor- malabsorption. W- w- how is that copper deficiency presenting? Uh, look, you know, that's, that's actually sort of a, a bit beyond my uh, skill and expertise. It's just something that Paul and I um, discuss where the patients come in with uh, other other problems with with gut health or with malabsorption syndromes or or inability to build muscle or or you know lo- lots of other reasons. So I think uh, you know I don't want to go beyond what my skill set is, um, other than to say that when you correct that, um, the patients become more healthy. Fantastic. So what we're proposing is is this diet that involves replacing lots of refined foods, lots of processed carbohydrates, vegetable yes. oils with animal protein. And I believe that it's our duty as people who eat a lot of animal-based food to source the highest quality and most ethically raised uh, animal food. So can you talk a little bit about um, perhaps where your family gets their, their food and, and how you approach this, this idea? 
Yeah, so look, my wife and I um, have had many discussions about this, and I agree 100% that, that um, if you are going to um, eat animal foods, you really need to have looked after the animal well from two perspectives. One, just from the, the mental um, uh, life of that patient, of that uh, animal. You know, you don't want to have a stressed, uh, abused animal just because that's not a good thing to do to another um, living being, whether it's an animal or a human. Um, and then you also want to make sure that when you are eating the animal, you're not getting unhealthy stuff from the animal. So if the animal has been given hormones, antibiotics, pesticides, because that's the only way to keep it healthy, you're ingesting all of the stuff that the animal's eaten as well. And so from your own personal health, that's bad. And from an animal welfare welfare perspective, that's bad. So um, I uh, have found a, a local farmer who uh, basically will sell me a whole animal. So I, I purchase an entire cow at a time. And so I eat nose to tail. I eat every part of that cow. So none of it's going to waste or, or anything like that. The animal is um, butchered without having uh, had to go through a whole slaughterhouse process where it gets incredibly stressed. I know it's organic, biodynamic, it's grass-fed, grass-finished. And look, I don't know how important grass versus grain is in terms of human health, um, but I just know that this animal has had a better life before it, it got to help me live my life. And I think that's very important. The same with the eggs that we eat. They're all pasture-raised um, eggs. Uh, from sorry, pasture age hens, and and then then you know I, I will never buy cage um, form uh, cage uh, made uh, eggs, and and even a lot of the um, free range are not actually free range when you go and look at the farm and look at how the animals are actually kept. Um, but look, this is somewhat of a luxury to be able to do that. <clears throat> but if you can do it, I think this is the best way of doing it. If you can't, I don't. I still think that eating grain-fed meat is better than eating, you know, pasta or pizza. So whatever meat protein you can get that's as as accessible for you as it is, I would prefer if people did that. If people don't want to eat red meat, fish, chicken, seafood, there are lots and lots of protein options. It doesn't have to be one type of protein. Can you do it as a vegetarian? Yes, you can. But it's way, way, way harder to achieve the same end results without eating animal protein. And on a personal level, I know that I don't do well that way. But I understand that some people ethically want to go down that pathway. And I don't have a problem with it. But they are going to have to work 10 times harder to get the same level of nutrients that we can get. And so people don't think that, you know, it it's a privilege or an elitist thing. You you can get access to very cheap, high quality organic meat um, if you are prepared to eat heart, to eat liver, um, to make your own, say, beef tallow out of suet. All these these cuts of the animal can be purchased for less than fifteen Australian dollars per kilogram, and it's incredibly high high quality food, and in, and in fact more nutrient dense than than the muscle meat. So I think. This is a, an intentional lifestyle choice that people have to make, and if they want to make it, then they'll they'll find a way to to make it work. And mm. as you as you say, um, Daron, buying in bulk and buying perhaps half a cow or a whole cow and freezing it is is a great way to go about that. And w w often, I mean, at the moment, red meat is a topical uh, issue, and people would say, "Oh, doctor." Red meat. I've been told red meat causes cancer. What What would you say to to a patient who who said that to you? Well, um, the first thing that I would say to them is that um, if you look at what I'm doing and the amount of meat that I eat, I clearly don't believe that. And my interpretation of the science is that that's simply not true. But that's my personal interpretation of the science. I'd encourage you to read it yourself. And then, uh, you know, come up with your own conclusion. I'm not going to push you one way or the other. Uh, but what I can say is that on a personal level and on a family level, um, I believe it's actually better to eat the red meat than it is to eat the other products. Yeah. And 
I mean, I agree completely. The question is, how can we expand this approach that's obviously so successful to the rest of the orthopedic, your colleagues, and the rest of the health system more generally? I think that's a, it's going to be a slow process, which will happen um, uh, from the ground up. I think as patients become better educated, they'll start to expect this as the norm. Um, at the moment, it's still very niche and, and very small. But, um, you know, uh, often people will bump into someone they haven't seen for a little while. They go, wow, you're looking fantastic. And, you know, how did you lose the weight? Well, I went on a low-carb diet. Oh, okay. And, and so the, the word spreads. You doing your podcast like this, trying to provide information for people, uh, is also part of the, the groundswell. I mean, as little as five years ago, it was, uh, you know, dangerous for me as an orthopedic surgeon to actually have this discussion because uh, Gary Fetke, uh, who led the way with a lot of this stuff, was targeted by APRA. And so, you know, the question was, were they then going to come after me as well? Um, and, and luckily, you know, the, the political uh, atmosphere has changed as well so that I can freely talk about things like this um and and not worry about the the repercussions um and look i'm not providing direct dietary advice to my patients i'm trying to provide science and information and then let another you know highly qualified doctor take over the metabolic side of things um but now there's more general practitioners who are expert in this field who are using it there are more dietitians who are uh, you know, the, the Australian dietary guidelines are changing to allow dietitians to actually use this. And there's nutritionists that understand it as well. So there's definitely a groundswell happening. People understand that you can actually cycle on and off this. So some patients now, now that they know how to lose the weight, sometimes what people do is they say, okay, look, I'm going to do this for a period of time. Then they go, okay, well, look, I'm going back to my wine club and I'm going back to my uh, mate's pizza with, uh, with you know, card night or just whatever it is, you know, having a beer after, um, you know, a sporting event or whatever it is. And then they'll put on weight. They'll, they'll put on 5, 10 kilos. And then they go, okay, look, I know how to lose the weight. So then they'll go low carb again. The difference is in the past, they had never been able to lose the weight. They didn't have any strategies which would take their weight back down again for them. And if that's the lifestyle people choose to live, well, that's great. But now they've got the power and the knowledge to understand what works and what doesn't. And that's the key point. It's about empowering people with the option. And at the end of the day, everyone's up there. It's up to them to make their own decisions about their own life. But mm. I think as us as doctors, giving patients that knowledge and giving them the option to help themselves um is is our duty so um yeah thanks very much ron do you have any any final or or Mm. closing thoughts that you'd like to share yeah look i you know i'm i'm an orthopedic surgeon i do knee and shoulder surgery and it's interesting because the discussions around shoulder surgery are somewhat different than the, the discussions around knee surgery just in terms of direct body weight because the body weight goes through the knee. But I still tend to have the same discussions with my significantly overweight shoulder patients because everything about their lifestyle is more difficult when they're pushing themselves out of a chair, when they're rolling themselves out of bed, when they're recovering from their operation. So I think, you know, foot and ankle surgery, which I don't do, or spine surgery, which I don't do, this, this applies really to all facets of mechanical loading of your body and in terms of you know diabetes complications, there are just so many facets of life that it can help you improve. Um, that that I think if you know a lot of people will not be able to do this themselves. A lot of people will need guidance. They need to understand what foods they can eat and they can't eat. They need to understand how to read a nutrition label. They have to have someone that will motivate them, and and so I would encourage them to seek out an appropriate practitioner who can help you with this. If you want to um, continue your low-carb stuff while you're in hospital, I'm very happy to you know, see you as a patient. And, and in, in my hospitals with me, absolutely, you can stay low-carb while you're in hospital. 
Um, otherwise, you can always fast. You know, there's, there's no problem with skipping two or three meals. Um, uh, and, and, you know, there's very little downside to doing that as well, rather than having to eat the ice cream or lollies that they give you in the hospital. But overall, I think it's a journey. It's not, uh, and, and people mustn't worry if they occasionally kind of fall off the wagon and, and eat some of the wrong foods. Just, you know, take it as a, okay, now I'm going to keep going. And, and each patient is going to find their own path. Each patient ethically is going to eat the food that they want to eat that, that is best for them. And there's no one way of doing this. It's not a cookie cutter approach. Each patient has to have their own motivation. And at the end of the day, they will improve their health uh, as part of this journey. And that's a, that's a fantastic place to end it. Um, th- thanks very much, uh, Daron. Do you have any, um, any links or any handoff that you'd like to give to patients who, uh, if they want to get in touch with you or um, have some surgery yeah, so, done? So pr- sure. The, the easiest website is just doron, doron.com.au. Um, I'm based in Sydney. I've uh, got practices in Randwick and Concord. Um, and uh, you know, all the phone numbers and links are on that website. Um, and, uh, you know, and anytime patients, uh, if, you know, they, I don't think they should necessarily come and see me just to discuss weight loss because I think there are better people that they can go to for that journey. But if they're having an orthopedic problem, they would need to understand how the weight loss can affect their orthopedic issue. Of course, I'm happy to see them. And, uh, of course, uh, um, in, uh, in terms of uh, surgical stuff, I don't just do knee surgery. I do shoulders as well. And it's not just arthritis surgery. It's sports surgery. But we've had actually enormous success with some of our high-performance athletes changing their diets and improving their performance as well. But thank you for having me on today. It's been a great pleasure. And I wish you all the the best success with your journey as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.